And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, if you'll turn me to the very back of it, to the book of Revelation, as we continue our way in a sermon series called The Triumph of the Lamb, we're in part seven. (coughs) Pretty amazing. Um, I hope that God's presence and spirit have spoken to you through this message, because I know, as always, the preacher has, gosh, there's so many things that I've learned. There's so many things that I've seen about Jesus that have absolutely been beautiful. And I hope that God's Spirit has been pressing those upon you as well. Specifically, we've been looking at these letters that were written to the seven churches in modern-day Turkey or uh, ancient Asia Minor. And we are actually making our way to Sardis, a very interesting church this morning. Um, And we'll be in God's Word in Revelation chapter 3. I remember sitting in a seminary class, and by the way, you need to know this about me, and many of you already know this, but I was able to cram three years of a Master's of Divinity into eight years. Just, it's a gift, you know? So, um, so when I say I was sitting in seminary, and I remember that, I sat there for a long time. I took a kind of a class here or there because I was already in the ministry and going back for my degree. And I remember I was sitting in a kind of a church history in a worship class, and we were looking at kind of an obscure book, to be honest with you. And it had said that it had found recently down in a basement of a church a liturgy, a worship service, for some guy named Charles Finney, who did a lot of revivals, um, and not a great theologian. Matter of fact, bad theologian in many ways. But they found this revival service in a little Presbyterian church, in a place called New Hartford, New York. I'm like, it's my hometown. It's my hometown. I know that church. I've been by that church a million times. I cannot believe that in seminary, here I am reading about a church that was pretty dead, um, that at one time was alive, that had some life. As a matter of fact, it intrigued me so much. The next time I was up there, I went to the church. And I went up and I went to the door. And there's a plaque on the door. I never noticed. It said, this church was founded by Jonathan Edwards Jr. Jonathan Edwards, who was preached probably the greatest sermon um, in, in church history, American church history. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. I mean, you don't think that that's going to work, but it did. I mean, people are grabbing the pew and they're screaming, what must I do to be saved? So God used this guy, Jonathan Edwards, in the first great awakening in America And then his son goes and he plants this church in New Hartford, New York. I couldn't believe it. So as we studied more, I realized that in that area, it became known as the Burnt Over District because they had so many revivals there. They would do all these revivals and and they'd always gather. And through that, at one time, um, the gospel was alive in the church. I'm like, man, that was a long time ago. And as I studied, I found out that there was a seminary in Auburn, New York. I'm like, Auburn? This is, this is crazy. Because the, the little family cottage that I grew up in in the summer, it's on the end of Owasco Lake. And at the end of the lake is Auburn. I'm like, there was anything there. And I went back. I went back to the seminary. And again, it's almost all empty. It's gone. Uh, and there's nothing there. And then you find out that it's part of a history that's sad. It was 
at this Auburn seminary, this Auburn affirmation, where liberalism gets signed into the church, where they said, hey, we don't have to believe anymore in God's word being inerrant. And we don't have to believe anymore that Jesus was born of a virgin. And we don't have to believe anymore that he's the only way. And there was a history. Some that was good and some that was bad and some that was pretty dead. You know, in Auburn, they got some of the most beautiful churches. And you drive around that area and you'll see churches like this. And that's a pretty church, isn't it? It's empty. It's no longer a church. That's the chapel. Uh, That's the Tiffany Chapel that was part of the Auburn Seminary. It's empty. And here's a church. I drive by this. It's right by a baseball field where a single A team plays. I always go by it. Empty. I'm thinking, what was the history of these churches? I think I got one more. And you, I don't think you can see this, but it's basically 1840 was the original time that they built on these. These churches at one time were alive. And now they're dead. It's true of many mainline denominations, even today, that just breaks our heart. And so as we look at God's word this morning, we're going to see a church called Sardis. And Sardis is a lot like these churches. At one time they had life, and one time they had vitality, and one time they had a lot going on for them. But now they were dead. But it's even worse. They thought they were alive. They thought they had it going on because they had a good reputation. The, in the reputation of men and women, they thought, hey, Sardis, man, they, they, they do a lot of cool things on Sunday. They, they, a lot of people show up at church. And so they had this reputation of being alive. But here's what God says to them. The truth is, in my mind, in my eyes, you're dead. This, this church is, is, is dying. Um, Sardis is an interesting city. Again, we've been looking at the cities. And, and again, it, it feels so far and ancient. And I'm not a historian. So I try to dig through the nuggets and give you the things that are that are interesting and a little bit relevant. Um, but at one time, this was known as a very rich city, kind of a pearl in that empire at one time. There's, there's a king by the name of Croesus, if I'm pronouncing it right. And all the commentators say this. It's so funny. It says it became well known that there was an expression, as rich as the king of Croesus. I'm like, I never heard that expression. Has anybody heard that expression I, I called our resident theologian, Doug Meyer. I'm like, Doug, have you ever heard that? I've never heard that. But apparently it was a town, a city that was known for its, for its wealth. But what really makes it interesting is this. It was a city that they thought was impregnable, that you couldn't get there. And the reason that you couldn't get there and they thought that they would never be invaded is because of the sheer cliffs of natural protection. It just was like up on top of this incredible hill. And they were so confident. Listen, they were so confident that no one could get to them. They didn't protect it. There was a certain area like, we don't need to set a guard back there. We don't need to set anything because no one could get up there. They weren't really ready for an attack because they thought they'd never get one. Twice it was sacked. Once by Cyrus the Great in 549 B.C., And then once by Anarchus, if that's pronouncing his name right, in 218 BC. And this is such a cool story. So they were coming up to the city and apparently somebody up in the city of Sardis, a soldier dropped his helmet over the cliff. And the enemies were down there watching the guy scale down to get his helmet. 
said, oh, so that's how you get there. And so they had somebody scale up the mountain and get into the city so undetected that he walked into the front gate, opened up the gate and says, come on in, guys. Why? Because they thought no one could get to him. When you think no one can get to you, when you think your life is untouchable, when you think that there's not going to be an attack, be very aware. Because Sardis and their church, they weren't aware. They, they just kind of compromised with the culture around them. They didn't have their guard up. And because they didn't have their guard up, they were dead. They were dying. The, the exhortation to the church of, of, of we're going to see to Sardis is this, be alert, be on your watch. And the exhortation for you and me is this, if you're a Christian and, and you want to live for Jesus, be alert, be on the watch. There's an enemy who wants to come after you and take you down. And the reason that Sardis was sacked twice is because it, it wasn't alert. They didn't think that they had anything to, to worry about. Interesting. Sardis of the seven churches that we're looking at, it's the only church that Jesus has nothing really good to say about them. It's the only one um, that there's nothing good to say about the church as a whole. There's some individuals that, um, that he praises. But we're going to look at this this morning, an important church, this church called Sardis. We're going to see four things. And I try to keep these together every week. There's kind of a similar theme as we unpack this. But we're going to see who this triumphant lamb Jesus is because in, in each letter, it describes to us who Jesus is. And it's going to use really vivid language that was used in chapter 1 to describe Jesus. And then what he, what, it's, it's so awesome. I just love God's word. He's going to say, this is what happens in this one church. And he's going to reach back and he's going to say, and here are the qualities of this Jesus that are going to be ministering that are important for this church so we're going to look at who the triumphal lamb is. We're going to look at what the triumphal lamb knows. So, so important what he knows. We're going to see what the triumphal lamb commands and what the triumphal lamb promises. Oftentimes through our study, we see what the triumphant lamb praises. And remember, if you're new to this, this is Jesus. So let me put it in other words. Who this Jesus is, um, what this Jesus knows what this Jesus commands, and what this Jesus promises. The triumphant lamb is just a very vivid image that God's word gives us of who Jesus is in Revelation. So we're going to look at Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. We've made it to chapter 3. Um, let's look at God's holy, inerrant word this morning with Sardis. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive or the name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. 
I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father God, thanks for your word. God, it is so beautiful. It's so living and active. and It's so relevant for today. God, would you come and would you join your people? Would you help us understand this letter? There's a lot of language in this. It's a little confusing. So God, you're going to use in the book of Revelation some pictures and some images that are hard for us to grasp. So Holy Spirit, would you come and be teacher? Would you come and speak through a broken sinner like me? And God, I pray that even in my weakness today, that I just wouldn't be a distraction, that we would all be able to see Jesus clearly. That you give us the ears to hear your voice. That you give us the minds to understand your word. That you give us the hearts that would embrace your truth. And that, God, you give us feet that would walk in a manner worthy of your name. God, the things that I say that are wrong are really my opinion. May those things fall away and be forgotten quickly. But the things that are said that are true and contain the good news of the gospel, and it's here in this text, would you use those things to make us more like your son, our Savior Jesus. And it's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen. The first thing we're going to see is who the triumph lamb is or who this Jesus is. It's interesting. It's going to use two descriptions that are kind of mind-blowing. It says, he's the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, you probably want to sit here and think, what in the world are the seven spirits of God? And the number seven in Revelation is very important. It's usually the number of completeness. So this is saying, basically, this is all of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is, this is all of God's spirit. And, and so really this, and by the way, it's mentioned in Revelation 1, chapter 4, who has this Holy Spirit of the seven spirits of God. You know, it could mean all the fullness, the manifold power of God. Um, but really, I think the best translation is this. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, so he has that. And we see that this Holy Spirit was poured into Jesus at his baptism. When he came on earth, it's a great story in places like Matthew chapter 3, where Jesus is being baptized and the Holy Spirit is being poured into him. And then you see the Holy Spirit being poured out of him to the church at Pentecost. And so the Holy Spirit is such an important part of God's story because where the Spirit is, you got to hear this, where the Spirit is, there's life. And where the Spirit isn't, there isn't life. And so here is Christ Jesus, the one who holds and gives through the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit pours upon us. The Holy Spirit brings life. And one of our values here at King's Chapel is that we are Spirit-empowered. That we realize that we can't do anything on our own. If less God's Spirit is here, um, we will be like Sardis. We will be dead. And it seems like what happens in Sardis was that the Holy Spirit left the building. It seems like that's what was going on. That the Spirit of God just wasn't present. And that's why he's going to say, hey, I'm the one who's got the spirit. I, I, I'm the one. So you got to look to me. And, and, and I got to hit pause here and say, I grew up in a tradition. I grew up a conservative Baptist. And I grew up with a very simple message that Jesus loved me, this I know, for the Bible tell, told me so. And I'm really grateful for it. And I grew up embracing Christ at an early age. But I never was in a church that was charismatic. 
I never was really a part of a charismatic spirit movement. And oftentimes with the church, there's an extreme. There's either those who just seem to just worship the spirit, the charismatic churches, to the point of nothing else seems to matter. And those who are so afraid of the Holy Spirit that they hardly talk about it. And I probably felt, fell more along the lines of those who hardly talked about it. Because there was something spooky. Something, put your arms around the Holy Spirit, right? It's hard to do. But the reality is this. If God's Spirit is not in your life, you're dead. And if God's Spirit is not in this church, we're dead. And it just brings us life. So he's the one who has the seven spirits. The Holy Spirit brings life to what is dead. That is always true. Scripture is going to say this. It's so true about who we are apart from Christ. It's really important that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, 1. That by nature, all of us have a spiritual death. That we're born that way. And the only way we can find life is to be made new. And the way we're made new is through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, if you've embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him for the dead, then you have that gift of the Spirit. God's giving you the ability to see and to know that reality because you can't have it without the Holy Spirit giving life to that which is dead. The Holy Spirit awakens that which is sleepy and the Holy Spirit quickens or makes alive that which is dead. And so here you have Jesus saying, Listen, I have this Holy Spirit and you're a dying church and this is what you need. Um, you know, I think it's important for us when you think of this one God, this one true and living God who, who is, is, exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not going to be a whole lesson on the Trinity, but it's really important the Bible teaches this. But here's what I want you to know. The Father is always the one who initiates. For God so loved the world that he would send his only Son. The Son is always the one who executes. Jesus came to live the life we failed to live, to die the death we deserve to die, and to be resurrected to give life and life abundantly. The Father initiates. The Son executes. Now watch this. The Holy Spirit applies. He applies. To, he, he brings the gospel to your life and gives you eyes to see and, and a heart to embrace. And he makes us alive. And so you see, for your salvation and mine, it takes all of God. It took God, the Father, loving us before time began. Go figure. And it took God, the Son, who loved us enough, that he became one of us and walked among us to do that which we failed to do and die that we deserved to die. And it took the Holy Spirit to come and say, I'm going to give you this life. So when it says, who is this Jesus? He's the one who will pour upon us the Holy Spirit to make us alive. He's also one who has the seven stars. This also is in Revelation 1, verse 16 and 20. And it tells us more specifically what the seven stars are. There's still a little bit of confusion. The seven stars are identified as the angel of these seven churches. Are these literal angels? Well, the book of Revelation is filled with literal angels. It could be. But the word angels is also could be messengers. Are these the pastors of the seven churches? Some will say, these are the pastors. Hey, I hold, I hold the angels or I hold the pastors in my hand. Some will say oh, it's really kind of a, like the ethos or the spirit of the church. I'm not sure. I think it's probably somewhere along the lines of all of those reality. But hey, he holds it all in his hands. And I think what it's saying is this. Jesus has the power and authority to bring back life in Sardis through the gospel and the Holy Spirit. 
And he's got the power and authority to bring back life to you too. The gospel has the power to bring you life in areas of your life that are dead. What's dead in your life? What is lifeless? God has the power and the good news that he can bring life. So that's who this triumphant lamb is. But what does this triumphant lamb know? And it's very interesting. He says, Here, here's what I know. You have the reputation of being alive, but the truth is you're dead. You got a good reputation in man's eyes, but in my eyes, not good. Uh, he had vitality with the people, but death in God's eyes. How deadly is a misdiagnosis? How deadly is a misdiagnosis? If you think you're okay and you're really dying, it's not a good thing. I had a little what we call, what I call, no one else does, I call a little heart incident in the summer of 2018. I drive into uh, Durham, North Carolina to my daughter and son-in-law's house, um, just one mile away from Duke Medical Center, one of the best institutions, Go Duke, where he is a uh, med student. And we get there late at night and I eat really bad food and probably drink a, a really cold beer. And I just know that when I went to bed, I didn't feel really well. And by four in the morning, I was really out of sorts. And I started Googling on my iPad heart attack symptoms, thinking, oh my gosh, I don't want to die in my daughter's house and I don't want to call 911. So I'm knocking on their door at four in the morning saying, will you please take me to the hospital because I'm not doing well. And here's what I do. I'm not kidding you. I walk into the hospital. I throw my keys. Like, you know, we go past through the metal detector. I mean, I, I don't care. Shoot me. I mean, I'm just, I'm in pain. And so <clears throat> I walk through and the first guy who sees you, I have no idea his expertise or what he does. He looked at me and goes, um, can you come down here with the EKG? EKG? This one doesn't look good. <laughs> and now I'm just terrified, right? And so they, they put an EKG on me and they do some blood work. And they say, well, Mr. Jakes, you're not having a heart attack. I'm not sure what's going on. So they, they do all kinds of exams. I'm not kidding you. I had a, a CAT scan and, and chest x-rays. And they told me that I might be a dissected aorta or whatever that is. And, and then and it was really weird because in my left foot, my pulse wasn't there anymore. And this is a teaching hospital. And people are just coming in just to feel my left foot. Like this guy doesn't have a pulse in his left foot. This is amazing. But throughout the morning, I got there at 4.30. Throughout the morning, they keep telling me, well, it doesn't look like you're having a heart attack. Misdiagnosis. And then there's my daughter, who's so compassionate and sympathetic. She said, Dad, you're mourning, you're, you're just moaning Myrtle. Like one of the uh, people on uh, um, Harry Potter. Would you quit moaning? Jesse, they've given me morphine. They've given me... Federal, I am in pain. This is killing me. Well, you're not having a heart attack, Dad, so just kind of suck it up. <laughs> well, I wound up, I did have a heart attack. Eventually, when they went through um, my wrist, kind of interesting, that's where they went through, and they, you're kind of awake for that. They said, oh, you got 100% blockage in one of these rare side arteries. It's like, it was called a hidden heart attack. I became, I became the talk of the cardiac uh, center, you know. This guy's got a hidden heart attack. He was misdiagnosed. You know, I, I was in one of the best hospitals for a long time, and I didn't have the right diagnosis. When you don't have the di right diagnosis, it's very, very dangerous. These guys thought they were alive, but they really were dead. 
He says, not only that, I know, I know uh, this about you. I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. This word complete, it's the word ploero. In the Greek, it means to full. It's full or fullness. I have not found your works full. It's basically God saying this. It doesn't satisfy me. I see what you're doing. It's like eating junk food. You know, it may taste good for a minute, but it's really not satisfying. It's really, truly not filling. Your works that you're doing aren't pleasing to me. They're not filling me up. They're not what I wanted from you. So what works are pleasing to God? This is really important. I'm going to jot some of these down. Works that are done with the right motivation. God cares about what we do and why we do it. And the motivation should be love. If you're doing the right thing to try to earn God's favor, you'll never get it. It's by grace through faith. And we respond to God out of love. The love he has for us and our motivation should be love. So works done with the right motivation, works done through the right vehicle. The right vehicle is faith. You're not trying to earn something, but you just have belief that Jesus is enough and now you're just following him. And that in faith, you are doing these things. Works that are done with the right goal. What is the right goal? For the glory of our great God and for the good of our neighbor. That is why we are to do what we're doing. Not so that God will say, look at how wonderful we are. That you'll somehow love and accept us. Because that's not the gospel. So works that are done with the right goal for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. And works that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That aren't on our own. Religious people do a lot of works. And in Jesus' day, he got so ticked at the Pharisees and the scribes and the, and the religious leaders because they did a lot of important religious stuff. They got so detailed that they tithe their, their mint and their dill. They got into the smallest things. They tried to do all these works. But Jesus says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're dead because you're just worshiping me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Our hearts have got to be in it. So what does Jesus know? He knows what is full about our works. But he also knows the people who have not soiled their garments. This is very interesting. Walk with those who walk with me in white. Now listen, if if you've missed me, come back in because you can't miss this. God um, knows who has been faithful and loyal to him. Why? This is crazy good. Because it's God who keeps us loyal and faithful to him. We are sheep by nature that are so lost and so wander. And we, by nature, are going to be going in the wrong direction. But when you read Scripture, you're going to realize that God throughout Scripture is going to keep a remnant for himself, people that are going to keep themselves from being soiled, and it's all by his grace. And oftentimes it's one, Noah, you and your family I'm going to save. Abraham, through you I'm going to bless the nations. Lot. Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed, but I'm going to come out. I'm going to save you, Elijah, Elisha. I mean, God always is going to keep for himself a remnant that is pure. Now, what I love about this, this description, it's God who has kept us pure and worthy. But I, I just, and it's God who keeps us faithful. But he also says, those who are worthy will walk with me in white. Who's worthy? Okay, now, no, this, is, this, is, this is where it gets really cool. If you had a soiled garment in that day, you couldn't go into any of the temples because none of the deities, none of the gods that were represented in those quote-unquote gods in those temples, you could go in with a soiled garment. 
You can't go into the God's presence with a soiled garment, but you know what the beautiful thing about the gospel is? Don't miss this. The gospel is not only come with a soiled garment, watch this, that Jesus puts on our soiled garments. He puts on our sin on the cross and he gives us these garments of his righteousness. That's the gospel. The difference with these other deities, he said, don't come in here dirty. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and I'm going to clean you. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to wear your filth so that you can wear my righteousness. That is amazing good news. And the amazing difference of the gospel of Jesus Christ with other religions that Jesus himself puts on our filthy garments and gives us his righteousness to wear. I want to read to you Zechariah uh, chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5. It's a beautiful story of this high priest named Joshua. And then he's standing in filth. And what Satan does. Listen to God's word. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It's not this a brand plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I've taken your iniquity away, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head, and then put a clean turban on his head and clothe him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. What's amazing about this is, first of all, it's Satan who tempts us to sin and then turns around and accuses us. What a jerk. And that's exactly who he is. He's going to try to tempt you to sin and then accuse you, saying, you're not worthy. You know, how many times are you going to still mess up like this? How many times are you going to go to that website? How many times are you going to use those words? How many times are you going to do that? I mean, look at you. He's going to accuse you. And here's the gospel saying, take off the filth. Put it on to Christ and let him robe you in his righteousness. That is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 1.18 says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be made as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like come like wool. Isn't that good news? Let's look at the book of Revelation. Revelation 7.14, I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We are washed and purified because of Jesus' blood. Revelation 22, 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. That's incredible. For they are worthy. Remember, no one is worthy in God's eyes apart from God's Son. Did you hear that? No one is worthy in God's eyes apart from Christ Jesus. Only Jesus Christ is worthy and only those in Christ are declared worthy. Remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that our worthiness leads to our salvation. It's because we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, that he makes us worthy and declares us worthy. So what, the, the, what he knows, what the triumphal land commands, wake up. I'm going to go quickly through this. Wake up, be alert. In your own life, Scripture says Satan prowls around like a lion for those to devour. 
Put on the full armor of God. Married people, let me just tell you, there's an enemy that wants to tear you apart. You know, those of you who have kids, there's an enemy that wants your kids. You know, those of you who want to take a stand for Christ Jesus, there's an enemy that wants to take you down. We are in a battle. And one of the biggest things that Satan can do to us is say, it's not a big deal. That you're, you're not a target. We're targets. Stay alert. Be alert. Be vigilant. Um, Satan is prowling around. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. I love this. Strengthen it. Shepherd and disciple God's people. Preach the word of God and the power of the spirit of God. One of our things that we talk about here at King's Chapel, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember. Remember what you've heard and what you've embraced, what you've received. The shortest distance to repentance is remembering. Remember the gospel daily. Preach it to yourself. Keep it. Obey. I love the fact that I have kids that are young because I don't feel as old that I have kids that are young. And yesterday, I got a text from my daughter, Jessie, and it was a five-part interview with Justin Bieber after his latest album. And it really said, I think the title was, I knew that there was something missing. And by the way, it took me like 20 minutes and about three phone calls to say, how do I get part two, three, four, and five? Because I couldn't figure it out. But you know, Justin Bieber, who grew up in a weird home, his parents never were married, but his mom was some type of believer. He says, I knew that Jesus died for my sins. I knew it, but I never lived for him. And now I realize that because of God's grace, I have to obey. I'm going to strive to, I'm going to fail. I'm telling you, my daughter said, says, Dad, I wept through this. And I don't, I listen, I'm not holding him up as the greatest Christian example because he's probably like me, a sinner that needs Jesus every day. And he might fall. But when I hear somebody say that Jesus not only has saved me, but he's calling me to obey him because that's where life really is found. I say, that's cool. As somebody who I think has experienced Jesus. Now I need to obey and keep it. Repent. Repentance unto life, Scripture tells us. Turn to Jesus, repent, and believe. Why? Because judgment is coming. And then what the triumphal land promises to the one who conquers. Remember, the only one who conquers is Jesus. In him, we conquer too. He represents us. We are clothed in white garments. Let me tell you what that means. It's our justification, our purity in Christ Jesus. If you, by God's grace, have embraced Christ as your Savior, do you know there's no condemnation for your sin? Do you know that one day God will look at you and declare you not guilty? Why? Because of who you are in Christ Jesus. You and I in Christ will be clothed in white garments. We don't deserve them, but it's all of God's grace. He will never blot, never blot his name out of the book of life. There's a double negative here. He's saying, I will never in no way do this. And blotting out a name is blotting out your citizenship. He's basically saying you have security in Christ. Those He starts a good work and he's going to finish it. If Jesus has a grip on you, he's never going to let you go. That's good news. And he's going to confess his, our name before the Father and his angels. We have identity in Christ. That he's proud of us. That he loves us. He's going to confess our names to the Father in heaven. My name is written in the book of life. Is yours? It's all by God's grace. It's all because of the work of his son. And my name will never be blotted out. And one day, 
Jesus is going to confess my name to the Father. Now entering, Jeffrey Peter Jakes, child of the living God, beloved child of God. Yes, yeah, sinner, a guy who goes the wrong way a lot of times, but in Christ Jesus, forgiven, for free, and mine forever. Are you alive in Christ Jesus? What does God think about you? Do you have the Holy Spirit that brings life and life abundantly? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the church in Sardis. What a terrifying example of a church that thought that they were okay, but really were dead. But God, we thank you for your grace and the Holy Spirit that can bring back to life that which is dead. God, I pray for any individual here this morning that doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that you bring them life that they would see the beauty of the gospel, that you wear their filth so that we could wear those white righteousness of Christ Jesus. That you will never blot us out of your book, not because we're worthy, but because Jesus is worthy. And God, whatever is dead in our lives, would you bring the gospel and bring life? And God, may we be like, gosh, it's kind of weird to say, Justin Bieber. In the sense where it says, I know that Jesus died for my sins and now I must walk in it and I must obey. God, I pray for him. I can't imagine how hard that is for someone of his fame and stature. God, but I pray for us that we would walk in a manner worthy of your name. I pray in Christ's name, amen.